my life is a life well lived, fully and richly lived. And sure, I could exist for some more years. I don't know that it adds to that measure. This is When I Die, Let Me Live. You know, if I'm, I'm going to die, I want to still be me. A podcast about how each of us chooses to deal with death. Or not deal with it. And when it comes, can we ever be prepared? ever imagine how you'll die? For some of us, it's an unwelcome exercise in imagination. But if you have a serious illness, you might have thought more about it. Some of us have even talked about it and planned for it with our doctors, which is what Jay Fishman did. Thanks for joining us for part two of our first episode of When I Die, Let Me Live. I'm your host, Lauren Kelly. In part one, we met a brave man named Jay, who told us what life's been like living with ALS, a disease he says he wouldn't wish on his worst enemy. Jay was a really successful businessman, the former CEO of Traveler's Insurance. You might know it as the company with the little red umbrella logo. Jay made the difficult but carefully thought out decision to step down from his post as CEO, when he began to feel the limitations from his ALS, a devastating neurologic disease. As head of a Dow Jones 30 company, Jay felt he wasn't able to perform at the high standards he expected of himself. In part two of our episode, Jay weighs the different paths that were possible as his disease continued to get worse. Like many of us do, Jay ultimately had to make some really difficult medical decisions Planning for the end the way Jay did can give us a sense of control when everything else feels like it's spinning. But how much control can we ever really have? Not long after our interview in the summer of 2016, Jay died unexpectedly related to complications of his ALS. This episode is dedicated in Jay's memory. You started to tell me a little bit about the tracheostomy, um, the option of the tracheostomy tube, and how you've had a lot of conversation with Dr. Hanson Flashen and also with your wife about whether or not that was something that felt right for you. And you Jay and I left off talking about his decision about whether or not to get a tracheostomy, which is basically a surgical hole in the throat that connects by a tube to a breathing machine. This is considered invasive ventilation. Jay had non-invasive ventilation, which was an external device that sat atop his nose. But non-invasive ventilation can only function for so long until the lungs themselves begin to fail. As simple as a tracheostomy might sound, it's not. 
It's one of the major medical decisions that almost all ALS patients face at some point in the course of their disease. In the earliest of days, I was already using not invasive ventilation. And so it didn't seem like, like that much of a leap. It just, well, I'm already hooked up to a tube. What the heck is the difference? Like many of us who aren't familiar with medicine, and particularly ALS disease management, Jay had to learn the significant difference between invasive and non-invasive ventilation. You might be able to hear in Jay's voice the pauses between phrases. These are the moments when Jay's non-invasive ventilator is pushing air through his nose down into his lungs. Jay's ALS had progressed to the point that he needed to wear this machine almost 24 hours a day. But as ALS progresses, taking even the smallest breath becomes impossible. At this point, only an invasive ventilator can keep someone breathing. There's a lot of conventional wisdom in the recommendation that people not have a tracheostomy because that more or less takes respiratory failure out of the picture. This is Dr. John Hansen Flashin, who was Jay's pulmonologist. He was the doctor who spent the most time talking with Jay about how he saw his future with ALS. They became so close in this process that they both considered each other friends on a first-name basis. Dr. Hansen Flashen eventually explained to Jay that trachs can prolong life for ALS patients, but not at an insignificant cost. With a tracheostomy and no other special provisions, a person won't die when they're not able to breathe enough to stay alive. With a tracheostomy, they may live on until they become completely paralyzed effectively locked in, meaning conscious and aware, but unable to move at all or to communicate in any meaningful way what's going through on their minds, what they're experiencing, unable to give anything to anybody else. Many people, once the prospects and the significance of a tracheostomy are laid out to them, decide not to do it. Getting a trach fundamentally changes the way patients live and interact with the world. With trachs, many people aren't able to swallow and eat normally, which means that they also need feeding tubes. Having a trach for patients with respiratory failure also means not being able to talk and communicate in the same way. Since the breathing machine is constantly working to provide breaths, it's usually not possible for patients to safely speak. Trachs can be uncomfortable, physically and socially and can also contribute to medical complications like infection and bleeding. But, all of this aside, trachs can provide additional time for the patients who desire it most. That's why it's so important to know where you stand. Everyone's different. So in the early days, I kept thinking about tracheostomy as a relatively active patient, right? Someone who still had some level of mobility, my thinking on it began to change when I began to understand that I was indeed going to get worse and that I would be, you know, the word that puts fear in people's heart, paralyzed. And now 
put the ventilation on top of that. The longer you face this disease, the more the inevitability of, of, of a motionless existence imposes itself on you. And that's what began to change my mind. Jay initially had a hard time imagining what his future would look like as his disease got worse. But his wife, Randy, had been there before. Randy was a physical therapist for many years and worked to rehabilitate patients with trachs. His wife, Randy, she's a healthcare professional, a life partner dating back to teenage years, very invested in his dignity. I think she didn't want to go there to an extreme level of disability, and I think she thought he would very much regret going there if he did. Perhaps part of that reason was, although I was seeing the brave, confident, assured side to Jay, she was seeing and hearing the weaker moments, the moments of doubt and frustration and annoyance, and she was feeding on that and reflecting it back to him. In our conversations, Randy painted a vivid picture for me about what it would mean for Jay to have a trach. First, it would require 24-7 nursing care, which involves hours of suctioning and cleaning. Jay would be feeding through a tube in his stomach and unable to talk to the people around him. Going to work would be out of the question for him at that point, which was a deal breaker for Jay. Work was such a huge part of Jay's identity. Randy also had concerns about privacy. Personnel would need to be constantly around their home. Even while sleeping at night, Jay would need to have a camera filming him in case he stopped breathing. Randy told me it was things like these, not even being able to hold on to moments of independence, privacy, and intimacy, that all began to add up. I, I just couldn't see myself that way. I couldn't see myself both unable to do virtually anything for myself and simultaneously having a machine keeping me alive. Now, other people, I respect other people's views. There's, you know, the statistics are plenty of people choose the tracheostomy path. And so far be it for me to say, well, you're, you're wrong. You're right for you. You're just not right for me. About Stephen Hawking, my life's work is behind me. His life's work was still in front of him. I admire the strength to say I still have enough purpose that I want to keep going. Otherwise, I sound like I'm proselytizing, and Lord knows I'm not. You gotta figure out what makes sense for you. This is what makes sense for me. Arriving at the decision to not get the trach grew out of multiple conversations over time between Jay, Randy, and Dr. Hansen Flashen. It makes sense that a decision this consequential would call for multiple perspectives. But one of the hardest parts about these decisions is that people don't always agree. Earlier in his disease course, when Jay and Randy disagreed about getting a trach, Dr. Hansen Flashen also had his own thoughts about what he thought Jay should do. My conversations with Jay about tracheostomy were difficult for me because my own thought was he maybe should go ahead and have a tracheostomy because he's so full of life and, and so driven to give and to achieve. And because he had unlimited resources that would enable him 
to continue to accomplish those goals. So many doctors find themselves in situations where they advocate for more treatment. After all, doctors are trained to fight and cure disease. And patients put such enormous trust in their doctors. If and when we give patients a recommendation, we have to be aware of how much weight it can carry. I wonder if Dr. Hansenflaschen wanted Jay to get a trach because he felt it would be in Jay's best interest. Or because Jay was his friend and he would have a hard time letting him go. So I found myself hard and actively restraining my own recommendations and opinion and trying instead to find ways to guide him in thinking about a tracheostomy and engaging his wife, Randy, in those conversations. And I'm very glad that I held back my own biases and recommendations and guidance for them in favor of asking carefully chosen questions and listening to what they had to say. Dr. Hansen Flaschen told me that listening means being comfortable with silence. Even when a moment feels painful, he says it's important to give patients and their families the space to process and feel. Listening to someone who might be upset or afraid also means not interjecting your own opinion. Part of the skill of listening means waiting to be asked before giving recommendations and advice. Sooner or later, People often do come around to ask, what should I do, Doug? If it was you, what would you do? Beforehand, listen first, listen most. When we listen well, we find ourselves imagining and inhabiting the other person's perspective. We begin to understand and confront the tough emotions that arise in our experiences of illness and death. As hard as it may be, Leaning into this discomfort is what allows us to learn from each other what matters most. For Jay and his family, the conversation continued to evolve. Jay's thoughts and concerns about the future became more and more clear. It, it is uh, challenging to allow yourself to become increasingly dependent. You'd like to get a drink of water, but you can't get into the bathroom yourself, so you have to ask someone. You can't go to the bathroom yourself. You need to ask someone to help you. It, it's not the, the embarrassment or I hate imposing. You start to do without. That sounds positive. The negative is I ask for help all the time. I just don't like asking for help. I do it, but I don't like it. And so you start to do without. You... You'd like some ice cream, but you're sitting in the den, and it's me and my wife. The only person who's going to get the ice cream is my wife. She's resting comfortably. I don't want to bother her. So I do without the ice cream. Not so important. No matter how much you're going to come to rely on other people willing to do that, and I sure am, your life just becomes more narrow, by definition. For so many of us who value independence, a loss of that independence can be terrifying. Randy saw what Jay was going through and was able to talk openly with him about how these losses were affecting his life and his happiness. Her concern about the amount of disability and dependence Jay would experience if he had a trach was out of a deep love for him. 
a respect for who he was as a person and what things were most important to him. Jay was a passionate communicator, and Randy feared the loneliness and isolation he would experience being deprived of that ability. Once Jay stopped being able to communicate with other people the way he most enjoyed, Randy felt that it would be very difficult for him to be the same person, spiritually and emotionally. It would be as if Jay was watching a movie that was his life without having the ability to interact with it. Randy knew Jay. She had loved him for 50 years, and she knew that it wasn't a life he would be happy with. To some extent, she was feeding back to him, reflecting back to him, the impressions that she formed during those moments of weakness, anger, frustration, mourning of loss that she alone was witnessing when they were home together. She was projecting from that what would serve him best in the far advanced phases of the disease. And Jay initially was considering the trach. Yes. And between his conversations with you and with Randy and his inner world, he arrived at the decision to ultimately not pursue the trach. I think if the conversations were me and Jay, they would have led to a decision to pursue a tracheostomy. I learned later that Jay's neurologist also thought he should have a tracheostomy. The deciding input there was Jay's wife, Randy. When people have ALS, in the context of a relationship or a marriage, actually two people have the disease. The planning needs to encompass the goals and the values of both of those people. As Jay's closest confidant and advocate, Randy had a perspective that held great weight. She had the courage to express her own deep concerns and fears for Jay, to recognize what the effects of impending disability would have on her beloved. She helped him flesh out his goal, which was to maximize the quality of the time that he had left rather than shorten it with treatments that left him with more limitations and more quickly. It's not easy for a spouse to do this, especially when facing expectations from others to be the biggest and fiercest fighters for their loved one. But Randy and Jay's open and honest communication helped Jay understand what life might look like as his disease progressed. In this sense, she became his greatest and fiercest advocate. As soon as he visited other patients who had chosen the tracheostomy and could no longer eat or speak, Jay's decision crystallized. So the combination of not being able to speak, because once you have the tracheostomy, you really can't, not being able to do for yourself, and now be the purpose of that life. If I had a five-year-old child, maybe I have a purpose that all I was gonna do in that case, was sit around and wait for people to come visit. I've lost a sense of purpose, purposefulness. 
it would be a challenge for my family, not speaking for anybody else now, to see the bright spot in that existence. Being there that way would bring real unhappiness to them. I don't want to do that. Randy and Jay's story teaches us that in order to make complicated decisions, we need to first understand how they'll affect our lives and the lives of those we care about. Having everything on the table helps us clarify and align our different goals and values. What's most important is that Jay ultimately made the decision and that he was at peace with it. With support from Randy, his family, and Dr. Hansenflaschen, Jay found the strength to define his own priorities going forward. All those things combined, the being paralyzed, not being able to speak, causing the people I love and who love me to be sad. Nope, no good. That was my conclusion, and I, yeah, I'm at peace with it, you know. Jay assured me over and over again that he made this choice for himself, that he'd never suggest to others what their choices should be. Other people do it differently, and I respect their decision. I asked the woman who runs the clinic I attend, what, what percentage of your, of your patients who have done a tracheostomy would say that they would do it again? And she says, I know the answer. She, it's about half. Half say they would do it again, and half say they wouldn't. Plenty of patients I know who have, who find great purpose and pleasure in life, and I admire them for it, just not for me. There's something revolutionary about Jay's choice. He knew that this would potentially shorten the time he had left, but it's what he ultimately wanted. What amazed me was that despite having no control over his disease, Jay did have control over his decisions. Having a sense of control was so important for Jay that he and Dr. Hansenflaschen even outlined together the different ways he could die. A conversation that for many of us would seem anxiety-provoking actually put Jay at ease. Jay was very interested in what specifically the end would look like. We did talk about scenarios. People having conversations silently with themselves. Those inner conversations can be terrifying. So just the, the act of bringing them up and out and forward into a conversation with somebody who's experienced about how things unfold and what the options are can relieve anxiety. Sometimes hearing the worst is anxiety relieving. My future has a couple of different potential alternatives. One is that I develop pneumonia and intubation is necessary. And I'm probably at the point now where once intubated, the likelihood of coming off it is very remote. Another alternative is that I managed to keep my lungs clear with John's help and support and work hard at it. I have more time and eventually the non-invasive ventilation isn't sufficient to keep me breathing comfortably. A third is that something acute happens and it's not clear whether it's recoverable or not recoverable. If I'm in that gray zone, support me. I'm strong enough to be able to say, we're gonna end this. But I don't want that decision to be made in effect at the spur of the moment. I want to be able to, even at that ending moment, to close a few things 
and not have it be in a distressed moment in an emergency room. That may be naive. I'm not a doctor, but I think the people around me at least understand it and could help me make that decision at that time, because that really is the point, right? I want to make that decision. Jay's desire to be present near the very end is one that so many of us share. But as it turns out, the majority of us won't be able to participate in these decisions, either because we aren't fully conscious or because we're not quite ourselves. Consider the scenario Jay described about getting a breathing tube. Dr. Hansen Flashen told me that getting intubated, as it's called, can sometimes bring a lot of relief to a painful and stressful situation where someone can't breathe. But since patients get a lot of sedating medication to tolerate the breathing tube, they usually can't have very substantive conversations after that point. After intubation to save your life, sometimes some people can do it. Mostly they can't. They want to, they can't. We force those conversations and those decisions beyond a point where people are themselves anymore and they can make those decisions. People very quickly lose their ability to assess their own situation and their own experience and rationally consider options and alternatives. Maybe they stay unconscious or maybe they're waking up from general anesthesia into an extremely stressed, unnatural situation. So I think often we overestimate the ability of people to guide their own care after that moment. Now you have some personal experience with this, don't you? Yes. Not that long ago, I was a critically ill patient myself. I recovered, but one of my biggest surprises was how quickly and how much my own brain, my own mind was scrambled after a few hours in an intensive care unit. I pretended that I was okay, that I could think clearly, but I completely couldn't. Being a patient in his own ICU helped Dr. Hansen Flashen recognize how stressful and disorienting it is to be sick. All the more reason to talk about these scenarios before we find ourselves in them, unprepared. I kind of like the idea that the conversations have taken place and the people who will be standing at the bedside have a very good notion of what a person's preferences are and where they are in their experience of their disease. With this disease, you give up the ability to be in control of ending your own life. I don't mean legally, I mean physically. You can't do it. And so you become dependent on others to be empathetic, to be sympathetic, to be kind, to allow you to go, but you just can't take it. For me, that was part of being in peace. That gives me the strength to keep going. I'm not afraid of dying. I have some anxiety about what it will be like if I'm still alive and completely dead weight, completely motionless. And because my disability is so breathing focused, it's impossible for me to explain to anybody what it feels like when you're short of breath 
and you can't breathe. It is painful. It is frightening. You can say, well, go stick your head underwater and you'll know what it feels like. No, you won't unless you wait until it's two seconds before you black out and then you come up. In those last five seconds, you'll know what it feels like. I don't want to die that way. And I just wanted to know from the people around me that when I said it was time, it was time. And I've got assurances enough to give me the confidence to go forward. On August 19th, 2016, less than two months after our interview, Jay died in his home in New Jersey. His death was sudden and unexpected. I was shocked when I got the email from Dr. Hansen Flashen. I was in the process of writing this episode when I learned, and his death somehow cast a new light on everything I'd heard in our interview. I wondered what had happened. Was he short of breath? Was he in pain? I so badly hoped that whatever took him was swift. When I asked Dr. Hansen Flashen about the details, he told me that Jay had had a good productive day previously. Everything seemed okay when he went to bed. And then he was found in the morning without pulse or breathing. It wasn't exactly clear what had caused Jay's death. Randy and I talked about it. And I said, as tough as this is, I thought the timing might have been about right. Two days before Jay died, he was surrounded by all of his family and friends. While his walking was severely limited and he could only lift plastic utensils, nonetheless, he was able to tell stories, laugh at jokes, enjoy a great meal, and share a glass or two of his favorite wine with everyone. He remained himself to the very end. His last day was a productive, giving, engaged one, but that his ability to be productive and engaged was sliding fast, and that very soon he might become more dependent and less giving and less engaged than he ever wanted to be. I was very fond of the man, and this, this loss, this death, hit me strongly and emotionally as well. Jay had become a good friend and a teacher. I was learning so much medicine from him, and frankly, I was looking for more to come, so I felt a sense of loss. I asked Dr. Hansenflaschen about the way Jay died it hadn't been one of the options that they discussed and prepared for. The circumstances never uh, came about that we talked about, but they were very relevant in that having the conversations and the outlines of a plan made the journey, the passage, easier and better. So there's a kind of an upside down there that this energy and effort applying for something that never happened, was it all a waste of time? And I'd say totally no. It was a part of assurance and comfort along the way Talking about and planning for the end wasn't morbid for Jay. It was all part of his process. The process of acknowledging life's limits, its edges, and honoring the things that make us who we are. This is what it means for us to live, even as we're dying. 
It's the best we can do, because when the moment of death arrives, it's never something we can be fully prepared for. Do you think that the way Jay died was consistent with what his hopes were? I think he hoped for another six months. I think he was more interested in how much more he could give and accomplish than the actual fine details of his death. On the other hand, if it was possible for people after their dead to look back and pass judgment on how he died, I think he would have been comfortable and satisfied and at peace with it. I keep thinking back to my conversations with Jay. Before his death, he never shied away from thinking through what would happen afterwards. It was important for him that his family felt prepared to the extent that they could be for his death. To some extent, we're we're in that process right now. They're all contemplating it. I'm contemplating it. So it's not like it's going to be a big shock. They'll figure out what they need and what they want at the time. It's not like we're not talking about it. We do all the time. All the time. We do a lot. We're in that planning mode. With my wife, it's a bit more of a challenge. I understand that. It's 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 harder. When we were first married, we used to have debates. Who's going to die first? We both decided that each of us were going to die first because we thought it would be hard to live without the other. Trying to find a purposeful, meaningful, robust life without her would be hard for me. I know it's going to be hard for her too. Both in his living life and in his afterlife, Jay has had powerful messages for all of us. He showed us that facing a terrible disease can be an opportunity to look deeply at our lives, to think about what they've meant, to reach out to those we love most, and to give of ourselves. What incredible grace this takes. I hope that in the face of my own death, I too can find the strength that Jay did. Reflecting back on my interview with Jay, I remember asking him an important question. I asked him where he thought his remarkable strength came from. I do think that I, I've had a sense of persevering, of uh, working hard, of uh, being responsible, a sense of grit, determination. I don't know where it comes from. It's the truth. I don't, A, I thank God it's there. After much consideration, the only things that come to mind are a great sense of gratefulness. I am so grateful for everything that has happened in my life. What an amazing run. How fortunate, how blessed. What are you going to do at this? You're going to pick and choose? You're going to say, well, I'll take all the good things you gave me, but here's the way it comes to an end, and I'm going to reject that? No. Don't bet for me. Whatever your life is, whatever it becomes, it's yours. And you take responsibility. I could have taken these two and a half years and wallowed in my own self-pity. Perfectly reasonable reaction. People would have said, well, of course. He's got a horrific disease that he's dying. Where's the value of that to be? I have moments of frustration, but that's different from self-pity. I laugh every day. It's good to be here. And I make that choice. I didn't choose the disease, 
but I make that choice. Down to the Thanks for listening to When I Die, Let Me Live. If you like what you heard, share it on Facebook or Twitter. You can find us there at WIDLML and at our website, WhenIDieLetMeLive.com, where we have details on each show and plenty of resources designed to help you on your own journey. And while you're visiting us, don't forget to share with us some of the difficult decisions you've had to make with the hashtag WIDLML. We'll share your contributions on future shows. Our next episode follows one man's journey with melanoma. He tells us how, as a father of two young kids, avoiding talking about death has helped him cope. When death is most unwelcome, how do we even begin to approach the subject? This idea that you check into some place and you're there to go to die and everybody's there to go to die. That just the whole idea of that just really it really affects me. We'd love to hear your thoughts about what you've heard. Please, if you can, review the podcast in iTunes and help other people find us. Special thanks to our sponsor, the Fostering Improvement in End-of-Life Decision Science Program at the University of Pennsylvania. This episode was produced by Lauren Kelly and edited by Lauren Kelly and Aaron Shapiro.